Well, hello everyone. Thanks for joining us. This is Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus. And today we're going to be actually discussing and talking about a moment in Jesus' life and ministry where uh, he has a bit of a church split. Yeah, you uh, you heard me right. Uh, Jesus led through a bit of a church split. This is this is sort of an interesting turning point, a turning moment in the life of Jesus. Now, if you're new with us, we are exploring uh, Jesus' life through the Gospel of John. We're in a series called the Gospel of John, and so if you're new with us, welcome. We're so glad you're here taking this journey with us. But we're going to kind of get into it, and today. Uh, we're going to do a little more of an expository kind of preach. We're going to kind of just go line by line and walk through this moment because it's got so much to think about, so much to offer, so much to meditate on. And uh, so we're going to get right to it. But <clears throat> here we come to this sort of turning point that the once popular Jesus is about to kind of cut his followers down to just a few. And it's getting harder and harder to be a follower of Jesus when we, as we watch and read this, this story play out. Uh, one Bible commentator, commentator, William Barclay, he says this, those who drifted away would have been, uh, would have stuck by Jesus as long as his career was on the upward way. But at the first shadow of the cross, they left him. So, so what happened? Well, if you remember, John has, uh, has focused into this moment of teaching where Jesus begins to teach about uh, being the bread of life, uh, being the sent one of the Father God. Uh, he's been talking about, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part of me. So obviously he's talking within a symbolic way, but he's, he's talking about you can't just be an observer or even an intellectual around the things of God. You actually have to partake of God. And he, of course, uh, reveals himself as that bread of life, the one that we have to partake of. We need Jesus in us to walk in life. And this becomes a little bit of a difficult saying for a lot of those that are listening. Now, the other part of this is the Messiah. The idea of the Messiah in the first century was one that was going to be kind of a socioeconomic leader that was kind of going to bring uh, economic stability but also social stability to the Jewish people. Now, remember, they were under Roman occupation and there's a lot of angst there. And so they're hoping for someone who's going to come and release them from occupation, who's going to lead them into uh, a more secure future, socio and economically. And, and perhaps when he fed them, right, the loaves and the fish and he multiplied and the whole crowd got fed, perhaps that was playing into their idea that somehow Jesus was now going to be the socioeconomic leader that was going to lead them into a secure future. And they're disappointed because obviously Jesus, uh, he actually rebukes them for that, that kind of motivation of their heart. So this becomes a big reason for the turning of the tide in terms of people following Jesus, his disciples. And, uh, it's not only for that moment, but it's also for this moment. It actually speaks really to this moment, you know, as we kind of look at what we put our hope in, in, in today's culture, today's society and time, we, we do much the same thing. In fact, 
Um, it's funny, the socioeconomic kind of dynamic, uh, we as evangelicals, uh, there's kind of a broken perspective out there that, that evangelicalism has kind of uh, married themselves to. And this is I, this idea that political uh, whatever is going to save us. A political leader, a political ideology, a political pursuit. Kind of this idea that we, we want to pursue like a theocracy. Um, it's, it's just a broken idea. And Jesus, Jesus was actually marginalized because he didn't play his role, his expected role in that. And it's kind of funny that we as evangelicals, we are now... Um, putting Jesus into that role that he never put himself into. It's kind of a broken idea. It's not a biblical worldview at all in any way, shape, or form. And I know even in saying that, um, particularly among evangelicals, some of you are going to get mad at me. Well, guess what? I'm among good company because they got mad at Jesus too. <laughs> they left him too. So, so let's dig into this moment today. As, as, as in the natural, it seems like this is sort of the beginning of the end. But of course, we know the rest of the story. This is really the beginning of the beginning. So if we uh, have John 6, 60 to 71, John chapter 6, verses 60 to 71. If you don't have a Bible, visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible. We would love to get a Bible into your hands today. Here we go. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those uh, were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said to them, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed, and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So let's take a moment to pray. Lord, we pray that as we dig into your word today, that Lord, you would just reveal truth to us. That God, this would be beyond an intellectual exercise, but this would be a revelation. This would be life-giving. This would challenge us. This would cause us to change. This would cause us to look more and more like you each day. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I don't know about you, but most leaders, when they're faced with a mass exodus, uh, usually kind of backpedal a little bit. You know, maybe they'll say the same thing, but they'll try to find a nicer way to say it, a more palpable way to say it. But here, Jesus does not do that. Jesus was never one to um, gently like recapitulate what he's saying. He digs into the truth, even if it hurts his following. And so here we see the beginning of the turning away. And in light of this moment, it's important that we do a bit of a post-mortem, an, an autopsy, if you will. And it's important because this moment happens in the first century under Jesus' leadership, but it also happens over and over and over again in the life and the cycles of the church, generation after generation. So we need to understand, okay, what is happening here? 
And how do we, as believers in Christ, walk this out? As I kind of talk about that, this idea that this has happened over and over again. Remember, this crowd, these disciples, these people, they're following Jesus in many ways because of the signs and the miracles and the wonders that he's doing. And, and he, they actually get rebuked by him. The crowd gets rebuked by him when they come over to Capernaum, which is where this is happening. And he rebukes them for being there because he knows the motivation of their heart is to seek after the sign that benefited them. The loaves and the fish that they got to fill their bellies on. And so here's this sort of moment, and, and Lisa and I, we just had an opportunity to hang out with a great couple, and they were sharing a season of their lives where there was like a, a, lots of signs and wonders, uh, both, both like legitimate but also perceived uh, kind of revival culture, if you will, at play. And there's many people that came to faith through that season and through that time Yet, as we are kind of discussing and talking about the long-term outcome of those seasons in the church, uh, sadly, they had to look at kind of the outcome and the fruit of that season and that time, and they realized that only just a few, just a, just a few of them stuck with their faith, uh, stuck with Jesus, and, and, and in a lifelong growing season of, of knowing Christ and following Jesus. And that's such a sad commentary, but it kind of speaks to this moment here as well. The, these people are looking for a sign. They're looking for the excitement. They're looking for the revival culture. They're looking for Jesus to do signs and wonders and, and benefit them through them. And yet here Jesus is taking them on a different trajectory, a different path. And he begins to lose a following in this moment. Signs and wonders. Um, again, we talked about it a few weeks ago. They point people to Jesus, right? The whole point of a sign of wonder, the supernatural intersecting this natural world is to point people, to cause them to look to Jesus. And, and it's easy to worship in the shadow of the glory cloud. Uh, it's much harder to worship in the shadow of the cross. And we're going to discover that today. William Barclay, he writes, those who would follow Jesus must remember that in following him, there is always a cross. There is always a cross. Now, now I know, I get it. In the age of the Robert Schulers and the uh, Joel Olsteins of the world, um, you want to hear something more positive. You want to hear something more fun and upbeat and, and hope-filled. And, and listen, here's the deal. I, the power, the power is not in the positive. The power is in the broken body, shed blood of our resurrected Savior. That's where the power is. And so like it or not, this is a hard moment as Jesus teaches these people something new, a new perspective, a new way to look, a new way to perceive the world. We would call it a biblical worldview. Now, I don't know where and when things went off course for the church, but the Western church in particular, we have such a skewed kind of version and idea of the Christian faith. I don't know if it's because we've created kind of these um, societies where a safety and security for the most part in general is available to people, but we've kind of allowed this sort of society and this way of living uh, affect our, our paradigm, the way we see the world. In fact, What's interesting is, is the biblical worldview, it undervalues many of the things that we value. 
It undervalues many of the things we value. And so the gospel becomes contentious for many of us. So let's walk through this moment step by step as we kind of have, have kind of done a bit of a postmortem, an autopsy of what's going on here. But let's walk through and kind of see how this all plays out. Verse 60 says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Now keep in mind, Jesus is, is, is not discerning the hearts of the crowd. Uh, it, there's there's got to be a bit of a distinction here. He's discerning the hearts of his disciples. This isn't just the fringes in the crowd. These are the people that have been following him, who have given up of their lives to follow Jesus and his ministry. And so he's discerning the heart of disciples here. And it's one thing to lose the crowd. It's a whole other thing to lose disciples. Like it's, it's a whole other thing to lose members of the church, people of the church. And essentially what's happening here is Jesus is about to lead through a church split. Do you take offense at this, he says? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? So what's he saying here? Well, he's alluding to what is to come. What, what, what precedes his ascension? If you walk through the life and the ministry of Jesus, what do we see? We see him head to Jerusalem. We see him falsely accused. We see him falsely convicted. We see him beaten and broken. We see him carry his cross to Golgotha. We see him hang naked in shame before the world in, in, a, in, in, a, in a shameful death reserved for criminals. And this is what precedes his ascension to the Father. He's saying, you think this is bad? Wait until you see what leads to this moment when I finally ascend to be with my Father. It is the Spirit who gives life. Verse 63. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Again, Jesus devalues the things of the world. <laughs> the body is of no help. The body, these natural things are of no help to bring you capital L life. And why is this so offensive? Well, Many of the Jewish elite of that period and that moment, they, they kind of prided themselves in their holiness, in their ability to walk out the law, to walk out this kind of holy way of living. And it's kind of ironically because it became a point of pride for them. They're, they created a hierarchy of, of holiness. And, and this is easy for us to do today. In fact, if I'm complacent, I, I can kind of begin to compare my life and the way I live to other people who maybe don't do it quite as well in terms of my understanding of how Jesus would call us to live. And, and I can kind of compare myself and I can kind of create this hierarchy of holiness. And I can go, you know what, compared to them, I'm actually pretty good. But the problem with that is then I can hang out with other people and I look at myself and I compare myself to them and I realize, oh, I'm, I'm a sinner. <laughs> I'm a horrible person. And so it doesn't work. It, it, the hierarchy of holiness, this, this idea that in the natural we can sort of walk out this way of life and living that's going to be pleasing to God, it just doesn't work. 
So this demands the question, you know, what standard do we compare ourselves against? And the answer is simple. We, we compare ourselves against the perfect, holy standard of our creator, a holy God. Now, this is where the problem comes in because the moment any of us compare ourselves against that standard, well, we're found wanting, we're found lacking. We don't have what it takes. And so here, Jesus flips the script. He says, you can't do, you can't do what it takes to be holy enough to know God, to be in right relationship with God. So Jesus here, he's tearing it all down. And this is not a popular moment for him because he's pushing against this idea of holiness that the, the Jewish people of the first century were kind of holding so tightly to. Holiness is only accessed through the bread of life. And of course, that's a reference to the Messiah. And here he claims, I am the bread of life. This becomes a stumbling block. It becomes a hard saying. And today we have a way of holiness, right? Like our culture preaches a way of holiness. We, we always create. That's what we do. We, we try to create these standards and these ways of seeing the world. And as, as a humanity, collectively, we do this. And we've sort of created this standard of right and wrong, this what I like to call an upside down ethic. And friends, just as Jesus pushed against the man-made ethic of the day in the first century, uh, we also, as we follow Jesus' example, as we walk out in, in a biblical worldview, in, in Jesus' way, the way that he taught us, we actually end up pushing against the man-made ethic of today. And, you know, keep in mind, in, in his day, that led him to a cross. So we need to expect to some degree that metaphorically, this idea of living and following Jesus in this way is going to lead us to a cross of our own. It's going to lead us to a dying of our own in our own flesh. But here's the beauty. The flesh is of no value as it pertains to salvation, as it pertains to knowing God. It's the spirit that brings life. And so Jesus is flipping things on their, on their side. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now, this becomes key, not just for the disciples of the first century, but, but for us today. It's, it's hard to tell what Jesus, uh, when he said, I knew from the beginning, it's, it's hard to tell exactly what he meant by that. Now, some might say, uh, from the beginning of the selection process of the disciples, uh, from the beginning of his ministry, he knew. I tend to think, and I tend to believe, that Jesus, though he was 100% man, he's 100% God, and he existed in the moment of creation. So I tend to believe that in the moment of creation, he knew, he knew every single person, every single disciple, every single person following him that day, who is going to fall away and who is going to stick it out with them. Um, here's the deal. This is where uh, things get a little hinky for us because when we approach as human beings, we approach a, an unknowable, uh, we really strive to know it anyway. And so we've talked about predestination or foreknowledge, pre-knowledge. Uh, how does this all work out with God? Here's, here's the reality. Here's what I know. I know that God 
draws people by the Spirit to Jesus. I know that some don't accept Christ, and I know that some do. There's a mystery in the mechanics of how this works. And I'm not going to get into the mechanics. I'm not going to get into the debate. I'm a little bit of a, if I was going to place myself somewhere, a bit of a more of a foreknowledge. God knew and knows uh, every decision and every implication that's going to happen in each person's life. Uh, he's omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's, he's just going to know. Um, so I'm not going to get into it. There's a mystery that's there. But the mystery demands that we have a trust in a just, merciful, and loving God. And the reality of who God is causes us to have to take a step back in humility and say, it doesn't matter what I think about this process. You're a holy God. You're a righteous God. It doesn't matter the angst that I have, the tension that I have in not knowing the mechanics of how this works out. You are God and I am not. And so your way is better than my way, is higher than my way, is incomprehensible. And I'm just not going to be able to comprehend it in this world and in this time. So we kind of give up. We kind of lean into the mystery in trust that God is holy and God is right and God is righteous. But what we do know is Jesus knew who would fall away in this moment. Um, and he knew who was going to stay when he kind of brought this revelation, this progression of truth to this people in this moment. And there seems to be a work of God the Father in sorting all of this out. Again, he reiterates the need for the Father to draw people to the Son. Salvation more, is, is more than an intellectual exercise. It's more than just an observation and then a decision. There is a living revelation that happens that God brings us into. Here's the deal. That way we can't boast about it. You know, Paul the Apostle writes in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, has, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So there's this idea of, this not even salvation, even this idea of coming to God in faith through Jesus isn't even our own work. It's the work of the Father, the work of the Spirit in us. So there's no part of salvation we can take credit for. But verse 66 goes on. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. What a, what a moment here. There's so much going on. He loses many of his disciples. Um, you know, Peter, as much as Peter has these moments, he also has inspired moments. And, and, and this is no different. In this moment, you know, uh, maybe he didn't fully understand what he was saying in terms of uh, Jesus as Messiah. I don't think any of the disciples had a full revelation of that until the Spirit came at the birth of the church uh, and the Spirit came to this earth. But they have an idea that Jesus has life, that Jesus has the answers, that he is in some way the answer he is the sent one from God. 
In verse, in verse 70, did I not choose you the 12, yet one of you is a devil? In other words, Jesus is kind of saying, you know, I, the Holy One, uh, I, I, the all-knowing one, the, the, uh, even I chose the devil. You know, I chose these disciples, and there's one of you among you that is of the devil. And, and I think this reveals a, a couple things about the nature of God. So if you'll bear with me. It reveals that he is merciful and full of grace, seeing the best in humanity even when the worst is present. Like the fact that Judas Iscariot is one of the twelve speaks to a mercy and a grace and a uh, ability for God to see the value, the intrinsic value in every human being despite their motivations and despite kind of where they're coming from. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh, he recognized the fact that both the righteous and unrighteous alike will in their own way glorify God. Um, like it or not, Judas Iscariot, motivated by the enemy of God, motivated by Satan, motivated by greed, motivated by the things of this world, glorified Jesus as Jesus was betrayed and was sent to this calling, this a walk that he was called and prepared to walk out, crucifixion, resurrection, exalted at the right hand of the Father. Judas Iscariot had a part to play. So the righteous and the unrighteous alike have a part to play in glorifying, lifting up, exalting Jesus. This is just a reality. All, lead, all, roads, all roads lead to the exaltation and glorification of Jesus. Now, not all roads lead to salvation, and, and, but they all lead to glorifying God. Make no mistake about it. However, a moment like this demands that we take stock of our own lives and our own motivations as we serve God in the church. It's possible. It's possible to be a part of the church of God and not be filled with the Spirit of God. It is possible to be a part of discipleship Jesus had one among his disciples. It's, a, it's possible to be part of discipleship and yet be walking in the wrong spirit, the wrong motivation. Um, now, I'm not talking about those exploring faith. Uh, we're so glad that we have those that are exploring faith among us. And th these are kind of two separate kind of things that we're talking about. We're talking here about those who order their lives after the teachings of Jesus are a part of the church in, in, a, in a way that is consistent and, and walking. Yet, even though those pieces are there, they haven't known the bread of life. They're walking in a spirit that is not uh, God's spirit. And this, this becomes important. I've seen this so much. I've seen this over and over and over again. Um, when he uses the word uh, Satan here, um, he, he literally means Satan. <laughs> He means the spirit of Satan, the, 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 uh, the adversarial one, the one who is against um, God, the Antichrist, if you will. And so there's this motivation, the spirit of Satan that's behind Judas Iscariot's motivations. Now, this moment in Scripture unveils some of the dynamics of discipleship that we don't really like to talk about. Um, I've been a part of so many broken moments in the life of the church, the capital C Church. And the reality is not everyone who is a part of a body in terms of uh, commitment, in terms of being a part of a congregation, is of the Spirit of God. And this, this moment in Scripture causes us to kind of take stock of what motivates our hearts, what's going on. 
Now, I pray and I hope and I pray that those who you haven't accepted Christ into your life, into your heart, um, those that are going through the motions of living out spiritual practice and spiritual life, but you, you, you don't know God, I pray that God would get a hold of your heart, that this Father would draw you to the Son through the Spirit, and that you'd have a living revelation of God, and it would change everything for you. But friends, we, we do have to be careful. We do have to kind of walk this out with thoughtfulness. Um, I've seen too many uh, broken moments in the church because of deep-rooted sin, uh, because of power, power, authority struggles. That's a classic. Um, these things are not the things of the spirit. These things are the things, the spirit of the enemy, the, the, the adversarial one, the, the one that comes in and breeds disunity among the people of God. And unfortunately, this is a reality. Just because you go to church doesn't mean you're walking necessarily in the right spirit. In fact, uh, Luke, he describes sort of a moment. And, and, and this can be long-term moments. This can be moments just in the moment. Uh, Luke, he describes this moment where Jesus is not welcomed into a Samaritan village on his way to Jerusalem. And James and John, they kind of say, hey, why don't we just call fire from heaven to burn them all? And Jesus responds to them and he says to them, you don't know of what spirit you're speaking of. You don't know that the motivational spirit behind what you're saying is not of God. It's of the enemy. And so he rebukes them in that moment. And so sometimes it's in the moment that we end up adopting the spirit of this world, the spirit of the enemy of this age. And we have to be careful and we have to be discerning and we have to um, continually look to God to help us walk in the spirit of truth and not the spirit of the liar. I, I want to close with this because sometimes when we talk in church and, and there's moments I, I mentioned uh, some names in terms of like kind of more positive kind of preachers. Uh, and uh, there's moments where we, we react to uh, the pendulum swing in terms of uh, teaching in the church. And so we'll, we'll, we'll go from here and, and we'll be reacting to this over here, which is, is a little off, but then we'll kind of take the pendulum and we tend to swing it all the way the other way because we're trying to make a correction, right? But, but all that that brings is, is unbalanced teaching on both sides. It doesn't help uh, actually narrow us in on, on a biblical worldview. And for those of you who have been part of uh, Evangel for the last almost four and a half, five years, uh, you'll know that Pastor Lisa and I, we, we lead out of, we try to lead out of scripture and a biblical worldview, but we've talked a lot about the pain and the suffering. Uh, we've talked a lot about the need for us to have in the West in particular, a more robust uh, theology of suffering. Um, where is God in suffering? Where is God in my suffering, in my circumstance? Uh, where is God when I'm not healed and I have to walk and endure hard times and, and all these things? And we, we kind of talk about that, but we have to be careful that we don't react to kind of all this really positive thinking, um, uh, signs and wonders all the time that we're always healed no matter what. And though that may be true in, in, in a perspective where uh, even in death, there's perfect healing, um, we, we, we got to be careful we don't swing the pendulum too far the other way. So here's what I want to say about pain and suffering in this world. I want to bring a bit of a perspective to it. 
And though we say things like, you know, life is pain, um, which is a fair assessment, we can't overlook the power of God that intersects our pain with his presence in, in a number of ways. You know, at time pain, and, and when we talk about pain, we're talking about bodily, emotionally, psychologically, uh, circumstances, relationally. We're talking kind of about all of it. And there's these moments where, you know, at times in the name of Jesus, we pray and take authority and affirmity and sickness and, and emotional mental pain is supernatural, supernaturally healed. And we believe in healing. We believe God can heal in the moment, in, in like, like in a moment. Um, but he can also heal over time and bring restoration. So whatever your circumstance, please don't shy away from asking God to come and intersect this natural moment with his supernatural power. Don't, don't ever feel like that's off the table. We always pursue the work of God in our lives. And so we should, we should pray in authority. We should ask in Jesus name that, that healing and wholeness and restoration should be our reality in this time and in this world. But another powerful promise to his presence is the peace. Uh, scripture says, Paul writes, there's a peace that surpasses all understanding as we make our requests made known to God. And so we invite God into our circumstance and we, we, though he's already there, we almost like position ourselves to recognize him in that circumstance. And there's a peace when we recognize his presence in any circumstance, any storm, there's a peace that we have that we have no business having, this peace that surpasses understanding. But God also, he also redeems our pain. He redeems our pain for his kingdom. And, and in that, we can find great fulfillment. There is, there is a, a, a potential in your pain to find fulfillment in life. And I know that seems so uh, contradictory. It seems so, um, it seems so counterintuitive. But there is pain, and there is a process through pain with the presence of God that can actually bring fulfillment and life to you. He can redeem painful moments. Sometimes the greatest fulfillment, the greatest perspectives, the greatest shifts in our thinking come because of pain. And so these are things that he does. He can heal, he can restore, he can give peace in the midst of storm and circumstance, but he can also redeem your painful moments to bring fulfillment because you know that it served the kingdom of God. It served something bigger than yourselves. And, I, and sometimes purpose is a powerful catharsis. Now I say this to say, to, to say that the, the pain in this world doesn't just leave us high and dry. Um, God redeems it. God redeems it. God is faithful through it. And I pray that this picture will cause you to be more like the 12. The 12 disciples who in this painful moment of Jesus teaching, this moment where it was causing those around Jesus to count a cost now. It wasn't just a fun roller coaster ride. Now, all of a sudden, they had to pay the ticket for admission. They had to think differently, act differently. They had to retool the way that they perceived the world. And in this hard moment, I pray that each of us would be more like the disciples who said, you know what, Jesus? There's no one else giving us truth and life like this. You are the source of truth. You are the source of life. We're gonna to continue to follow you. And I pray that even when the shadow of the cross um, covers our lives, 
that God would give us a grace to continue to pursue him and to know him and to love him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that this moment is, is uh, written out for us, this moment where in a natural way, Lord, it looks like you kind of lost so much here. So many followers, so many disciples, so many people that left you in this moment because, um, because you spoke truth, because you gave a revelation of what is true about this world, about our circumstance, about our need for living bread, our need for the Father to draw us to the Son. Lord, we pray, Lord, that in this moment that those who don't know you, that there would be a revelation of Jesus in this moment. May God, you would cause us to see you, that you would cause us to know you. And Lord, for those of us who do walk by the Spirit, Lord, I pray that you would just remind us of the presence that you bring, even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of standing up for hard things in a world that doesn't want to hear it. Lord, you, you give us your presence as a gift of peace, of healing, and of redemption. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every one that, Lord God, we would walk in such peace and, and walk in such hope, knowing that you're with us every step of the way. So, Lord, we choose you. We choose you in the world of so many ideas and philosophies, Lord. We look and we, we see and we recognize that, Lord, you're the only one that spoke truth. And you are the bread of life. You are the Holy One of God. And so, Lord, we look to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for being with us, everyone. I'm going to turn it over to uh, Pastor Marcus and Pastor Lisa uh, just for a few announcements. One thing that coming back together in faith community has shown us is how much we need each other. And the running of Evangel Church day to day is no different than the relational need we have of each other. Faith community works best when everyone uses their gifts and talents to serve one another and to glorify God. And so we want to invite you into a season of discerning where you fit in Evangel Church. We have a form at myevangel.church forward slash get involved, all one word, myevangel.church forward slash get involved that we would love for you to fill out and we can start walking through a season with you of finding your fit here at Evangel Church. It takes all of us. Faith community works best when we all, each of us, use our gifts and talents to serve one another and glorify God. Well, we want to thank you so much for your partnership financially in the mission and the vision of Evangel Church, both locally here, but also around the world. And to learn more about how and how you can give and, and what we kind of do as an organization, both locally and around the world, just visit myevangel.church forward slash give. But with that out of the way, I want to talk to you a little bit about the two reasons that uh, believers give and and the first one sometimes it kind of starts here you, you you're excited about vision mission you want to be a part of the movement and so a practical way to do that is to kind of serve and you, you might have heard us say this over the last year and a half or so if this adds value to your faith journey or to your life uh, consider partnering with us and that can be a good inspiration but there's there's like a second step to this idea of giving in the Christian biblical worldview and and that is we give because God has asked us to give. God has asked us to hold loosely 
to the things that perhaps sustain us, the, the, the symbol of sustenance, of, of security. And that's our money, that's our bank account, that's what we have. And so as an act of faith and as a deepening in discipleship, we take and we give of our first fruits into the storehouse and we say, Lord, you come first in all things, even this area of my life. And so I just pray, I, I, again, we thank you for your generosity, for joining us in giving, but I pray that, that your generosity of making room in your heart for others would go deeper than just being inspired by a mission and a vision, but it would rather be brought into this deeper dynamic of discipleship, of going, God, you come first in my life in all areas.